Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Today's tale begins in 1666, in the Ottoman city of Adrianople, modern-day Turkey. We zoom in on a prison cell in the sprawling Edirne Palace complex. Our prisoner is a Jewish man, a little past middle age. I picture him deep in contemplation, in spite of the din of noise projecting off the stone walls. Now I couldn't guess if he was stoically resigned to his fate frozen in a mad panic that tomorrow would be the end of him. But I can say tomorrow is a big day, one that will change his life drastically. I can also state, and I cannot stress this too much, how it plays out is entirely up to him. The man is a claimant for the position of Jewish Messiah, one of dozens of such figures throughout history. His name is Sabbatai Zevi. A known rabble-rouser, Zevi ran into trouble the moment he disembarked at Adrianople, and, well, I'll say more on this later, but what we need to know now is he was arrested and imprisoned before he could make any real trouble. The things did get heated, and tomorrow's sabotage will be brought before the Sultan, Mehmet IV, and given a difficult choice. For close to a decade, Zevi, a former Kabbalist rabbi, has claimed to be the true son of God, Tomorrow he could choose a simple execution, a trial by arrow, where archers would try to turn him into a human pincushion, and who knows, the Son of God should be able to pluck a rain of arrows out of the air, right? Or his third option, he must wear a turban. That third option is far heavier than it sounds. He gets to keep that turban. That turban comes with a well-paid, respected job at the palace. It comes with luxurious housing and most anything one could think to ask for. The downside, if he chooses a turban, he is symbolically accepting Islam and abandoning not just Judaism, but all claims of supernatural power and knowledge. To his followers, Sabbatai will be making a confession. He is little more than a common grifter who got lucky. We'll come back to Sabbatai Zevi and his choice later. But first, let's detour to Oak Park, Illinois. The time? A very specific 6 p.m., 21st of December, 1954. A magic carpet glides above rows of middle-class suburban homes. At one, a dozen or so suburbanites, all quite literally seekers, mill about excitedly. The seekers, also known as the Brotherhood of the Seven Rays, are a New Age collective who believe the lady of the house has a direct line to an alien civilization. They've been camped out at the Oak Park house for several days now, in anticipation of the apocalypse. Most have sacrificed everything just to be there. Family, relationships, even their jobs. Such adversity has only served to strengthen their resolve. Earlier in the day, journalists and bemused onlookers alike gathered outside. The seekers stood on the lawn and sang Christmas carols to the onlookers. Under press scrutiny, most must have understood people were laughing at them, but did they really care? 
In a matter of hours, anyone who laughed at them would be hundreds of fathoms underwater as the Seekers cruised through space towards the planet Clarion. They were the few, the lucky few. As darkness fell, a couple of Seekers exited the house and stared up. I can't help but wonder if they were anxious the aliens might struggle to find them. I mean, they were advanced enough to cross the universe, locating our pale blue dot effortlessly. But does that automatically mean they could pinpoint 847 West School Street, Oak Park, just as easily? On the scene that night, watching intently, an MIT lecturer in psychology named Leon Festinger. The professor has planted a couple of interlopers among the seekers. The lady of the house, the one with a direct line to the aliens. Festinger identified her as Mrs. Marion Keach. A few years later, Marion adopted the name Sister Thedra. In the years since, Marion has been identified as Mrs. Dorothy Martin. Dorothy was a true believer and a seeker in the general sense of the phrase. She was a follower of several New Age movements before she graduated to guruhood herself. While in her 30s, an Indian friend invited her to a meeting of the Theosophical Society, Helena Blavatsky's spiritualist movement that birthed, or at least influenced, all future New Age sects. Becoming heavily immersed in theosophical thought for some time led to Dorothy studying an offshoot of theosophy that was gaining in popularity in the mid-1930s, Guy and Edna Ballard's I Am movement. Madame Blavatsky may have believed in a deeper, spiritual reality, just waiting to be unlocked by meditation, through revelatory guides, and through transcending the regular human experience. She allegedly traveled the Americas, the Caucasus, to Kashmir, Burma, India, Indonesia, and beyond, before she finally broke into Tibet and met with a mystical master who guided her to those deep understandings. The Ballads allegedly came across their master through a chance meeting at Mount Shasta, Northern California. Of course their brand of mysticism would appeal to her. Dorothy later discovered Ospa, a new Bible, written in the 1880s by a part-time spiritualist and full-time dentist named John Newborough. Ospa ponders the big questions in life, apparently giving the reader a view of the spirit realms. The book called for people to be vegan and pacifists and just generally virtuous. Newborough called for his followers to abandon heroes and intermediaries and to connect to the great creator directly. What makes him pertinent, Newborough wrote Ospa through automatic writing. Every morning he sat at his typewriter for half an hour, just letting the divine move his fingers for him. Dorothy moved from there to Dianetics, L. Ron Hubbard's 1950 attempt at a psychological treatise. Hubbard hoped to be the next Sigmund Freud, but he knew nothing of the field, and Dianetics was pilloried as utter babble. He later repurposed the book into the cornerstone of a little cult you may have heard of. In April 1954, Martin started experimenting with automatic writing, initially hoping to speak with her deceased father. She claimed other spirits reached out to her, but not her father. 
First earthbound spirits wrote through her. Then aliens beamed astral messages to her. First the mysterious elder brother appeared. Then beings from the planets Clarion and Cirrus. By mid-April, Dorothy claimed she was now in regular contact with an alien from Clarion named Sonata. Word spread among the New Age community of Dorothy's conversations with Sonata. She gained a following among them of people who also wanted to speak with aliens. When on 23rd of July 1954, Sonata stated on August 1st they would fly over Lion's Field. A dozen people accompanied Dorothy. No one saw a spacecraft that day, but Dorothy and a few others recalled a strange man talking with them. The man, they claimed, just disappeared into thin air in the blink of an eye. With the aliens a no-show, Dorothy lost seven followers that day, but others were convinced by the words of one of her staunchest followers, a university lecturer and former missionary festing her names Dr. Thomas Armstrong. The doctor convinced others the man was so odd he had to be an alien. What's more, like Will Smith's character in Men in Black, he must have used an advanced technology to wipe their memories of his spacecraft. On 2nd of August, Sonata wrote through Dorothy. Dr. Armstrong was absolutely right. He was a strange man with a memory-wiping device. What's more, something terrible was about to happen. On 15th of August, Sonata wrote again to explain that terrible thing. There would be a massive flash of light across the sky, followed by a flood that would engulf the Americas. On 27th August, Sonata called in with a further revelation. Not just America, but the entire world would be inundated. The alien also had a date for them. 21st December, 1954. Dr. Armstrong leapt into action, writing to every paper he could find an address for. One newspaper, the Lake City Herald, ran the story in a tiny article on their back page in late September. Professor Festinger just happened to be reading the Herald that day. Sensing an opportunity to study the psychological effects of the sudden obliteration of a strongly held belief, surely there couldn't be a real apocalyptic deluge, he made plans to infiltrate the Seekers. In the following months, Dorothy picked up a slew of new followers besides the professor and his assistants. There was Fred Purden, a student who fell out with his parents when he joined the group. His doomsday prepping ate up all of his time, and Fred flunked the whole year. There was Laura Brooks, who gave away all of her earthly belongings, because who needs earth stuff on Clarion? Susan Heath was a zealot who fell out badly with her dorm mate, and was banned from proselytizing on college grounds. As the day drew near, everyone with a job made a pact to quit immediately. Mark Post walked from the hardware store. Edna Post quit the daycare center. On resignation, her former bosses made it clear not to come looking for a job back when the aliens failed to come. Bertha Blatsky packed a job in as a secretary. Dr. Armstrong had no chance to quit. His employers had already fired him. Then 21st December arrived. At 10am, 
Dorothy received a message. At the hour of midnight, you should be put into parked cars and taken to a place where you should be put aboard a porch. Porch being their word for a UFO, apparently. Dorothy is told the aliens would transmit a message every hour on the hour to the seekers. Throughout the day, members arrive and the media set up outside. Onlookers gathered. Well-wishers from the general public stopped by to wish them well, but there were no hourly messages from Sonata. This led to heightened concerns among the group, and quirky incidents like the Christmas carols on the lawn. Were this group all recently acquainted to the Seekers? They might have just packed up and gone home, but when you've sacrificed family ties, friendships, even your job to be there, Damn right you're going to hang in to the bitter end. At 11.15pm, finally, a message from Sonata comes through. Put on your overcoats and prepare to leave. They will message again once overhead. The Seekers removed all of the metal on them, as per the aliens' instructions. This included all the underwires in their bras and all of their zips. Midnight rolled round and nothing happened. Five minutes later, a follower noticed one of the clocks on the wall read 11.55. They all agree it can't really be midnight yet. Then at 12.10am, Sonata sends another message. An intergalactic version of Traffic as Hell will be there as soon as possible. Five minutes after that, the phone rings. And no, it's not ET phoning, but news reporters. What's happened? Have the aliens landed yet? At 2 a.m., a young follower leaves. His mother told him she would call the cops if he wasn't back by 2. Undeterred, the others state this is probably a good thing. The boy had no commitment to the cause, anyway. But by 4 a.m., doubt sinks in, and the mood darkens among the seekers. Someone bitterly comments they have given up everything, burned every bridge, they knew this was all nonsense, but they have nothing to return to. This was not vigorously challenged by anyone else in the group. At 4.45am, finally, a new message from the aliens. Sonata had turned the ship around and returned to Clarion, but he wanted to explain why. The Seekers were bona fide heroes. Earth was doomed, but the Seekers, through their show of faith, Move the gods to tears by the sacrifice. Then at 5am, a postscript beams through from the aliens. The good news is to be released immediately to the newspapers. One might expect the Seekers to be broken by this non-event. Turns out their faith was only strengthened. They quickly spread the word, attaching various tidbits along the way that could fit their narrative. There were a couple of tiny earthquakes in Italy and California that night. Those were now the first rumblings of a disaster the Seekers averted through their sacrifice. At this point, we should really return to Sabotai Zevi, and we should add some more context. Sabotai Zevi was born in Smyrna, Ottoman Empire, in late July or early August, 1626. He was born to a Sephardic Jewish family, meaning his ancestors had also been given a difficult ultimatum. 
in either Spain or Portugal, following the Alhambra Decree of 1492. The region's Christian rulers, having finally ousted the Umayyad Muslims from Spain and Portugal, turned to the region's Jewish citizens and offered them the chance to either convert to Christianity and stay there, or remain Jewish but abandon all of their belongings and leave immediately, or do nothing and face execution. Sabbatai's ancestors chose Judaism and moved to the other end of the Mediterranean. Sabbatai was intensely religious, studying to become a rabbi. In his studies, he discovered a series of mystic texts called the Kabbalah. You may recall this was the sect Madonna became enamored with in the early 2000s. While by and large Jewish in their tenor, these texts were heretical as they claimed to give the practitioner a direct line to God. In 1648, Sabbatai claimed he spoke with God one day, and God revealed he was Sabbatai's real father. But this wasn't all. Sabbatai had a mission to lead the Jewish people back to the Holy Lands. This would, of course, bring about the end of days and eternal life hereafter. When it became clear to the rabbinate of Smyrna that this charismatic young heretic was getting a following, they quickly sent him packing. But ultimately this did nothing to slow Sabbatai Zevi's momentum. Over the next few years, Zevi gathered a large following among the Jews of Europe and the Middle East. He called his following the Sabbateans. Sabbatai was hardly the first claimant for the title Jewish Messiah in history, and he would not be the last. Though the number of major claimants had slowed down a ways, since Simon bar Kokhba and his failed revolt against Rome in 132 AD. Sabbatai had a large Jewish following. He also had backers from Christendom. A group of Christians, referred to as the Millenarians, believed the world was coming to an end. The victory of Puritanism in the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell's new model army deposing and executing Charles I in 1649, well, that had to be a sign. The next sign would be when the ten lost tribes of Israel returned to the Holy Land. Now to be clear, Christians do not believe Sabbatai was the Messiah. Their Messiah was Jesus Christ. But they thought his success would bring Christ back and lead to them being beamed up to heaven. Both groups believed 1666 was the year it would all happen. On Jewish New Year 1665, Sabbatai Zevi made a public statement, surrounded by his followers. The Messiah was ready to start the revolution. He would travel to Constantinople, riding on a lion with a seven-headed dragon in its jaws. His henchman, Nathan of Gaza, upped the ante, stating Sabbatai would place the Sultan's crown on his own head. Well, little did he know how prophetic that statement would be. The Ottomans caught wind of the speech and kept a close watch for his arrival. On arrival, Sabatai Zevi was arrested. It seemed initially he would simply be left to rot in jail, but a few months after his incarceration, Sabatai was caught trying to order a hit on a rival Jewish messiah from within prison. The vizier of Adrianople, Sultan's top administrator in the city, had him brought before the Sultan. And this is when Zevi was given his choice. 
Option one, the Vizier ceases all messing around with him. Sabatai would be impaled. This, by the way, is effectively what happens if he makes no choice at all. Option two, well, Sabatai claims to be the Messiah. The Messiahs have supernatural powers. Tomorrow he can prove his powers to the Sultan. Zevi is to stand before a company of archers while they empty their quivers into him. Option three. Since Sabatai has shown such interest in the Sultan's headwear, he will find one of the Sultan's turbans laid out for him on a table. Put on the Sultan's crown, accepting that if you do, you will be renouncing your claims to divinity and your Jewish faith. In doing so, you will be converting to Islam, with all those other prizes mentioned earlier. So before we roll on, dear listener, first what would you choose? In Sabatai Zevi's place, are your beliefs worth dying for? Second, how do you think he chose? Well, Sabatai Zevi was no martyr. He picked up the turban. I imagine he adjusted it to make sure it wasn't crooked. He entered the room to say hello to Sultan Mehmet IV, his new boss. Now if you're thinking, well that's a quirky tale, let me assure you. To the Sultan it was anything but. And if you're wondering what happened to the Sabbateans after this, well, we'll get to that. What you need to know is Sabbatai Zevi was a failure many times over. And his repeated failures had the opposite effect of what one may expect. They only upped the ante for his followers. He made numerous claims that the world was coming to an end, each time picking up masses of followers. He was their messiah, after all. His first attempt to cause a revolution was in 1648, 18 years before his meeting with the Sultan. By the time he was expelled from Smyrna around 1651, he had a large following, Many of his followers burnt bridges over their devotion to Sabatai, making it harder to abandon him. As his fan base grew, Sabatai picked up more followers more quickly through the bandwagon effect. If that many people are following, then he must be right. The more he said outrageous things that should have revealed him as a grifter, doomsday predictions coming and going, the more those followers invented reasons to support Sabatai. Myths arose of Sabatai Zevi performing miracles, and the movement took on a life of its own. When he returned to Smyrna to make his Jewish New Year's speech, surrounded by an army of followers, he was first welcomed home as a hero, a local boy made good. All across Europe, Jewish populations broke into joyous celebrations. Their Messiah had finally come. All of their many sufferings were to be finally made right. Many thousands of Sabbateans packed up their belongings and made for Smyrna. In cities where trade was largely dependent on the Jewish community, like Amsterdam and Hamburg, their economies ground to a halt. When he was arrested and taken to Adrianople, Muslim citizens mocked the Jews in the streets with chants of, is he coming? Is he coming? The mockery galvanized many Ottoman Jews into action. That guy was now their guy. And an attack on Sabatai Zevi was an attack on them. Thousands of Jews picketed outside his prison, 
demanding his release. The assassination plot may have been the final straw, but Sultan Mehmet was feeling intense pressure over the arrest from the moment Sabatai was arrested. The last thing he wanted was a bloody insurrection. The Turks saw their best chance to get out of this mess bloodlessly was to trick Sabatai Zevi into converting to Islam. And things did calm down after this. Amsterdam and Hamburg and no doubt dozens of other cities returned to business as usual, as people returned to their lives. But what of the hardcore followers, those who were so far down the Sabatai Zevi rabbit hole? Was there a rash of suicides? Were hospitals overrun by people who lost their minds? Well, anything but. Many of Sabatai Zevi's followers continued to follow him. They themselves converted to Islam, if only outwardly. One imagines that there was Twitter in 1666. Sabatai's new profile photo would have been flooded with thousands of posts stating, Merciful Gambit, sir. These new converts to Islam were referred to as the Donma. These Donma continued to follow Sabatai long after his passing. They show up in odd places in Turkish history. By the 19th century, they lobbied for a far more secular nation, and particularly for the modernization of their cities. They featured prominently among the Young Turk Revolution of 1908. They're still around, but often coy about their beliefs, as the current regime has been anything but kind to them. But in 1666, they were stunned by recent events, and struggling any which way to explain this turn of events. Professor Festinger coined the term cognitive dissonance to describe when one just cannot see their reality due to deeply held beliefs. He described how someone with cognitive dissonance will seize upon any tiny thing that backs their worldview. They will twist themselves backwards in mental gymnastics to make these alternative facts match their narrative. It is reductive to think of the cognitively dissonant as dumb. They're often smart enough to weave often complex narratives out of the most obscure things. But in this day and age, and to be clear, I am drawing a line to the proliferation of modern-day conspiracy theorists, and not those caught up in the horrors of Palestine and Israel at the moment. Those people, those other people, who have fallen down the rabbit hole can be all kinds of infuriating. The rise of the post-truth society is sometimes terrifying, but if there is any solace, it is that it is hardly a new thing. But I should leave the final word to Professor Leon Festinger. Someone with a conviction is a hard person to change. Tell them you disagree and they turn away. Show them facts and figures and they question your sources. Appeal to logic and they fail to see your point. On their thought. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. 
Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.